You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live, stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has me Hi. On this very difficult weather day up here in the Northeast, I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski, and we're on the list that were made in the 1950s and early 1960s, the late 1950s, early 1960s. And the Westerns that were made in that time were happening at a time that there were probably about 20 to 24 Westerns on primetime television. <laughs> you know, the Western was, was uh, in a way, the, the mode of storytelling for the United States. And it sort of evaporated. Uh, we've talked about the Big Valley uh, with our friend Tom Shabila. Uh, we talked about Bonanza and Gunsmoke. Um, and those were sort of like the ones that were that were left. Um, and I, I think in general, it's it's worthwhile discussing how the Western has been always much more than just, you know, a, a good yarn. It's always been a way to, to impose upon our community a vision of what America should be like, what the world in a sense should be like. And I think as we get to the end of the 1950s and early 1960s, the cynicism starts to creep in to a point that it's not a Hiddish anymore, how the mid late sixties and seventies, we get in film, a um, sort of a denouement and a uh, uh, exposure of how, sordid and full of lies the american tale was and whether it's little little big man or other films uh that became popular in the 1970s even butch cassidy which we've extolled on this platform before uh butch cassidy and sundance kid <clears throat> those are really in a way revisionist to the point that um i think the western is 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 it's finished you know, you know, you did have Silverado that came out and some other films. I know Deadwood, I know on, on cable streaming and on Prestige TV, there's a lot going on in, in Yellowstone and some other films, which shows that really we, we seem to be, you know, gravitating towards what the Western uh, uh, genre is. But and it's been used, I think, in Brokeback Mountain and other ways to sort of like make truths about society there was a lot of talk about jane campion's uh the power of the dog i think sam elliott um who has been sort of like a, a holdover from some of the uh, great western films that were still being made in the 50s and 60s um you know <laughs> sort of dissed the whole film uh the power of the dog but um uh, but it's sort of, it seems like we can't get away from it. And I think that it's worthwhile zeroing in on some of the messages, whether it's about race, whether it's about brutality, whether it's about male toxicity. Um, the Western somehow seems to be the envelope that's able to carry the message for American audiences. It seems to be able to touch tone notes. At least it did primarily, I think, in the in the 50s and 60s. 
And I think that there's three films I wanted to talk about. But you took, uh, let's start tonight uh, with the news that just came over the wire. Uh, that's a person that you are familiar with uh, uh, has passed away. And why don't you take a couple of minutes to uh, to talk about him? Uh, well, yeah, I just, just now heard that Rico Browning passed away. He just had his 93rd birthday. And he, in the underwater sequences of all three of the creatures from the Black Lagoon, um movies for universal in 1954 creature from the black lagoon 55 revenge of the creature which we spoke about and 56 the creature walks among us uh all three of those films in the underwater sequences when when the creature was swimming it was rico browning in the costume playing the monster so he was the the last surviving universal monster you know so if, if you if, if the classic era of universal monsters uh, obviously it was the last classic monster of uh, you know it was a different a different generation than than the you know maybe the more famous ones but he you know it, it became just as iconic as the earlier monsters so and it was interesting because i was you you were talking about you know best picture nominees and um and i was actually thinking about um about Rico today because I was watching a video on YouTube about uh, the process of how movies are, uh, you know, how the Academy votes on, on, on the various categories in the Oscars. And I remember Rico talking about, you know, I, I've mentioned, I've met him a number of times, took pictures with him, have his autograph and uh, was in the audience listening to him tell all his stories and you know every time he had different stories and he was already in his late 80s early 90s because he was a very talented swimmer and he was able to hold his breath and uh, he stayed underwater you know for maybe four minutes or so and was able to, to swim with that heavy costume on i remember my wife asked him how uh how they choreographed the one scene where um uh, julia adams who uh, we also met the first time she had passed away a few years ago, but we, we saw her once also at the first time we went to Monster Bash. We saw both of them there. And it was in 2014. And uh, my wife asked in one of the, you know, the public question and answers how they choreographed the scene where Julie Adams was swimming under the creature. And he said it was actually totally by accident. The The director, you know, was trying to, make it that he was chasing the mon that that the monster was chasing her but instead he was swimming directly under and it came out uh quite a beautiful uh almost uh ballet scene of how they were how how they were swimming um so his his talent you know and the iconic you know i remember he was a, a gruff tough guy but he always you know enjoyed meeting his fans and it gave him a lot of a lot of uh, inspiration in his old in his old days uh, to uh, to know that you know because when he said when you know in those days they didn't generally give credit to people in monster suits very rarely did they do so and he had asked for credit and they they wouldn't give it to him and he said when when the movie came out he had to pay for a ticket just like everybody else and two uh, two actors who played the creature the other was Ben Chapman. Who, who played uh, on land, um, and then uh, he was much taller than Rico. But Rico, because of his swimming abilities, that's how he he got these uh, th these jobs. And he he really uh, again it was, for him at the time. You know, people asked him, you know, what was it like? You know, did you realize how iconic it was? He said, no, it was just a job. It wasn't. He didn't realize, you know, he was making anything special. And it's only now, you know, it was only years later that, it, you know, even though it was iconic pretty quickly, uh, it wasn't, it didn't strike him, you know, at the time that he was doing anything so special. But then, although they are not human looking and they become, whether it's Chewbacca, whoever it is, um, I mean, this is something that uh, when the film is uh, strikes enough of a chord, uh, that image becomes something important. It could be E.T. as well. So uh, you were, I guess you had the, the the luck, as it were, to be connected to someone that was part of something that was a hit. But for every, for every creature of the Black Lagoon, we've had 
you know, we've talked about all the other, um, you know, disaster, disaster creature films that never really got off, uh, barely got off the page that maybe were in, you know, went to drive-ins right away and are now maybe only shown on like Svengooli and some of the other programs that you like. So yes, you know, you never know what it's going to be, whether it's going to be something special or not, whether it's going to actually hit a home run. But I think you're correct. The idea that, you know, that, that people recognize this monster as iconic. Um, the creature in Black Lagoon is, 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 is <laughs> yes, he's in that pantheon. But I think yeah. there's a lot. I think there's a, I think one well, could actually. Well said in the, in the movie, you know, he is a, it's a character. It's not his fault. You know, it wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't the monster as much as just an animal that was yeah. a, a Devonian relic. You know, and that's what... yeah, you know, you have Gollum who's played by um, the British actor circus um, who's able to, you know, you know, inhabit that role. And I think he's done a number of other uh, CGI roles and the, the fusion uh, between the character and the illusion that's being created, I think is, uh, you know, one could say the same thing about the raccoon and the Guardians of the Galaxy, um, or or any of these characters. I think people um, they they now take on a life of their own. Um, I think the difference is between the films you're talking about, Yitzchok, and the ones today. The ones <clears throat> today, there seems to be a, a greater ability for them to outlive their creators and the people that were involved in them because it's CGI and because. You know, even if it's a voice talent, we can somehow mimic that. So even when the original actor passes away, somehow that 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 icon can be can somehow be brought back to life again in some other fashion. And I think that's really what what, what we're seeing. I don't know if uh, if these characters that Marvel uh, Cinematic Universe has unleashed are going to stand the test of time, but uh, they seem to have a pretty good track record for the last you know ten years or so. Well. We'll see what'll happen, and uh, you know, and and again, what, what does it really say about our community that that we're so attracted to these stories? I think that's really part of what we need to ask that question. At least I I like to ask that question. Um, you know, I, I understand why superhero stories uh, are catching people. Um, I think there's a certain um, it, it's taking the place of what we would call perhaps myths, and 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 I and it also has, of course. Uh, a literary, a literary backing, if you call it the graphic novel or the comic itself, as a place where it could go to, but then it expands outside of that. I think you have these comic book geeks who are able to create a vision that enwraps everyone. I'm not sure about you know general monster flicks, um, but you know again, I think it meant something back then. I think we've talked about Yitzhak, how you know the the Japanese uh, origins of many of the monster films were part of what Japan was struggling with in terms of dealing with um, the, the, the monster that they had created during World War II and the monster that had been imposed upon them, the idea of atomic uh, fallout and, and, and the fear that we had of living in the atomic world, um, the fact that the world was becoming smaller and stranger whether it's outer space. I think, again, this is all part of what film tells us. As, as a movie that made the, the best picture, which I wasn't that uh, enamored with, though I, I recognize the artistic value of the movie. It wasn't something that I really would ever probably watch again. It was The Shape of Water. And I remember, you know, for years and years, they always said, you know, a monster movie is never going to get the Oscar nod for anything other than special effects. And they're a, a, a monster movie, you know, a monster really based right out of The Creature from the Black Lagoon. And they, they, they consulted Rico Browning a lot on, you know, how the, the monster should move and everything else when they made the film. And he said he didn't really much care for certainly how the movie ended. Uh, but here you had, you know, that that precedent was finally broken, was that... You know, yeah, but, but, but I think it probably, it's like, it, it isn't so much a enlightened aspect of, you know, that, well, we're not going to look down on monster movies. I think part of it was using, although I didn't see the film, but my sense is that it's connected to the idea of what's my identity and that the idea of cross-species love um, needs to be accepted and understood as a metaphor for, um, for you know, the, the LGBTQ movement as well. I mean, that's part of the, the, the theme of the movie itself. And... Right. So I think, I think we, you know, they, they're just waiting, you know, for, for a vehicle. Again, making use of 
uh, and maybe even tropes from stuff from the 50s that have already been entered into the sort of like the subconscious mindset of people going to movies. And let's use this now to push this message about how there could be love, there could be a cross species, and that the suppositions that we have are really false. And this is sort of like the message that the, that the culture wants to sort of steamroll us with. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know if I would applaud it as much as no, it I looks wasn't. like you're doing. No, I, I don't would, applaud uh, it. I'm not. I'm not a fan of the movie. I just thought it was interesting that. Yes. Well, again, it serves. It's again, it serves the purpose of. Uh, yeah. of, of I mean, uh, uh, you know, the the the. I I, I don't know if we want to spoil the movie, but it was. It, it, in the end, it wasn't cross species. I guess that was the message. Was I guess it is who she was the whole time. You know, was was not who who we thought she was. I guess kind of. Uh, but um, yeah, I think we have to add in this regard District 9, which was also really very much sort of like a horror monster film where you actually see that um, this infectious, this disease really um, turns what we would call one of us into one of them. And um, once again, it's sort of like, you know, um, like some of the 1960 uh, books that were written about the fellow who turn himself black in order to to walk among blacks and realize what it was like. I think that's part of what District 9. Well, man, right? Special effects and all the advancements of CGI and other things that made District 9 and The Shape of Water um, into really high-class films. But, of course, they the messages that they were carrying were very different. I guess one could really even say that about, um, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still and many of the other, or even, even uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Again, there's always uh, behind... Uh, the technical wizardry there's always obviously some sort of message and as i said i started talking about westerns which i think are, are the blueprint for this um and i guess we're just seeing it really in all the genres uh, th that directors and writers have a some sort of more than the story that they want to tell and that's why they're different than some of the serials whether it's Five Vance or even The Thin Man, where it's really just about the story and about solving the mystery or Charlie Chan or Mr. Moto or any of the things we've talked about. Um, we there's a, there's a vision and a message. So you want to talk a little bit about, uh, about John Ford's, he had a hand in the production of 1949's Mighty Joe Young, which I, I think has is, is obviously been always been overshadowed by King Kong. I don't think it ever, you know, King Kong, I know, is your favorite movie. We know that. It's like anybody who ever listens to this show, even for five minutes, knows that. But uh, Mighty Joe Young, which is sort of like uh, an extension, I guess, of revisiting uh, the Simeon type of uh, uh, hero. So why don't you talk a little bit about that, since John Ford seemingly, you know, was was involved with Marion C. Cooper and and providing the funding for this movie, which has a, a huge cast and great special effects well it's uh, it, it also since you know you mentioned the western genre it has some western theme to it because the one of the the heroes is a cowboy and i think you know one of the things we we were discussing off pod before we started was you know how like you had just mentioned the the later westerns were became the the opposite of what you know the westerns were always you know the, the you know you think of Gene Autry with the white hat fighting the bad guys with with the black hats and the and and it was there was this idea of the noble cowboy and and then you know some of the movies that you were discussing that you would want to bring up were you know showed you know the real history of of the West you know really maybe wasn't as clean and pristine and and heroic as as we would like to think of it and in this movie you know here the the hero of the movie is is a cowboy and they ask him you know are oh, you from texas he said no i'm from oklahoma we have cowboys there too and uh and, and there it's representing you know the corruption of the city and the city life of faith through through country life and agriculture and so forth is somewhat i think a theme that's brought out here is that here i mean i'm i'm jumping the gun quite a bit the, the movie was as you've said it it, it was really a companion piece in many ways to King Kong, you know, almost any time it was shown on television when I remember it, uh, and for years it was kind of shown generally, you know, on Thanksgiving or New Year's or something, they'd show King Kong and then the Son of Kong and then they'd show 
mighty Joe Young, and these are kind of right. Uh, and, and, and 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 he comes from someplace in Africa, although King Kong come Kong comes from Skull Island, but right. he's he's somewhere beyond where Black yeah. Africans are are some sort of natives. Yeah, and the yeah. same way, the same way, Joe. Production, you have the same, you know, you have uh, Max Armstrong, who was Carl Denham and Kong, and son of Kong, he plays Max O'Hara in this movie. Again, he's uh, a nightclub pr- uh, promoter, and he wants to bring, you know, the biggest lions and, and all kinds of big animals from darkest Africa to be in his nightclub that, that you know, when she was a little girl, she picked up, she bought, she, she stri- traded her father's uh, uh flashlight to buy this baby gorilla and the gorilla grew up to be this this huge huge almost monstrous sized gorilla but it was it was her friend and her pet when she was all alone in africa and and this max o'hara brings her back to africa and uh, the special effects team willis o'brien who did king kong brought his protege ray harryhausen who had a big credit there in in the movie and one of the things that he um, that that he uh, he used in this movie, one of the effects that he used that was quite amazing to me, still to today, was that he, you lasso you could lasso the from you know riding on horses with you know actual actors on horses throwing a lasso and seamlessly have that lasso go onto the animated figures, whether it was the gorilla or the um, also the lions that they lassoed and, and Harryhausen used that same effect in the movie that we had discussed before, which was a full Western theme was Valley of Guanji, where again, the cowboys were actually lassoing dinosaurs and how he did that effect is still, it's, it's quite, quite an amazing effect of, you know, how seamlessly, because usually effects like that, you see somewhere a seam of where, where it cuts off and you know what they did was they they threw a lasso onto a truck or something and had it pulled tight and he animated it perfectly without any obvious seam or split that it looked like that same lasso was capturing this this small model that he made to look like like a giant uh, a giant gorilla but this was again this was a uh, like the creature from the black lagoon it was the fish out of water you know and, and obviously your sympathies are with are with with Jill and her friend Mighty Joe Young, and of course she's aided by the cowboy, who it really was a cowboy Ben Johnson, of course, who actually uh, this was his first film that he was credited in. He'd been uh he'd been around a lot of westerns. Uh, he was a real or he knew how to ride a horse very well. I've talked about him uh, in this platform uh, about Wagon Master, which was made the next year. Uh, where he is basically the star of Wagon Master, which is really a, 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 a underlooked, really great film. It's got Terry Carey Jr. and and Ben Johnson as leading this um, this these group of Mormons uh, to the West. And uh, again, it's it's it, that it, that's probably one of the the most underappreciated westerns. And Ben Johnson had a great career. Obviously, he won the Oscar for the Last Picture Show, which we when we talked about Bogdanovich a year ago about Bogdanovich's uh, the brilliance of the casting of Ben Johnson in that role. Um, so, yes, it, it, I, I think in many ways, uh, Mighty Joe Young was cashing in on people's memory of Kong, because as you said last week, Kong was reissued every couple of years, right? I mean, people could always, yeah. Kong didn't, Kong didn't go out of circulation. and <laughs> People, people loved seeing it. And I think yeah. uh, seeing this sort of upgraded, more kid-friendly version. I mean, it, it doesn't have, I think, the psychological pre-code sort of issues that I think um, the original Kong has. I don't know if those are issues or, or, or mindless. I think this is a more, I think it's a prettier version in many ways. Yeah, um, I mean, well, it's it, you know it has its intense mm-hmm. you know drama, but it's not as uh, great. Right, I, I think we I think we also have to remember that you know people in 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 gorilla suits were sort of pretty pretty common in sure. films, and I I mean you almost had them. I mean, it was like expected almost that there'd be the gorilla outfit. Yeah, there was Charlie Gamara, and there was uh, so so Red so. So, so I think, you know, Harryhausen's version of Mighty Joe, which was, 
I guess, you know, in, in a way, uh, um, an advancement on some of the stop motion uh, that, that had been developed for Kong, I think, was a big treat for people. And I think the theatrical poster, although I think overdoes it a little bit, you can see that uh, instead of the usual theatrical posters for these monster flicks that would emphasize the woman uh, with her bodice being ripped or being under attack, I think, you know, the 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 poster for Mighty Joe Young properly uh, emphasizes the creation, uh, Harryhausen's creation of, of Mighty Joe himself. And um, I think it's definitely worth a watch. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, uh, it's definitely should be watched. And, 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 and it's, it's probably, it's fun. It's really a fun film, I think. And, uh, and you're right. It does have an element of, as a Western Ben Johnson, as, as, as the cowboy is sort of like. It's, a, it's presenting the West as the foil to the city. Uh, and, uh, you know, archetypically. And, you know, that's, I think, you know, when that myth was destroyed in the, in the types of films that we were discussing earlier, but, you know, the, yeah. I, so let, let me, yeah, I, message, I get it. The message of this here is that the grass isn't greener on the other side either, meaning, you know, with, you know, we, you know, whether you think it's going to be better in the city and, and, you know, this here, you know, they took not only Joe out of Africa, but Jill out of Africa. And in the end, you know they they're brought together and and there's obviously there's a happy ending there um yeah. you know as as it's a you know very light type of affair but it's it represents i think that and i think both i think even when i mentioned briefly guanji also kind of represents that idea that this recognition that the west <coughs> represents and even another harry house movie where where the West is is glamorized and and not as twenty million miles to Earth. I'll have to talk about that at a different time. Uh, uh, that the the myth of the West, the the mystique of the West, what it represents archetypically, in a way represents something more important than what the actual history was. And then, but now you know as you know time went on and and there was certain more seeming sophistication. We people want to get away from that mythology and get into the real gritty truth. And like you said, with you know, you know, I, I think that well, the reason for the myth obviously is to strengthen the bonds of the modern person. Uh, the myth is something that would be spoken about in uh, you know in, around the campfire in various campfires among the various tribes, and the myths was a unifying sense. So the idea that you know the West was colonized by uh, the great courageous people who needed to put the savages down. That was a very important myth because otherwise it justifies slaughter. It justifies what, you know, what actually occurred. And I think, you know, when we talk about the, the three films and I'll just mention what they are right now, John Ford's Sergeant Rutledge, um, which again uh, is placed in John Ford's oeuvre, I would say, although there might have been other films that were made earlier and afterwards, but I would say it's sort of uh, an arc from the searchers, Sergeant Rutledge, and then sort of culminates in the, the Man of Shot Liberty Valance. If we now connect that, um, the next film, um, which is Ride the High Country, which is Sam Peckinpah's um, really first great Hollywood production uh, with Joel McRae and and Randolph Scott. And that was in 1962, uh, probably made in 1961, but uh, it was uh, released in 62. And then you have uh, 1959's um, Day of the Outlaw, which is Andre de Toth's very neglected director. Uh, much less room is being is played to Peck and is, is played to de Toth than Peckinpah and Ford. <laughs> but uh, de Toth was very well known in terms of his noir-like westerns that he made in the 1950s. This was the last one called Day of the Outlaw. And that, that stars Robert Ryan and Burl Ives. And as I was telling you off pod, uh, one of the only places I remember a dramatic role uh, for Tina Louise, who gets third billing, but she's not, she's, she gets her name in, 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 you know, in the credits all by herself. And if you take a look at the poster, it's basically all of Tina Louise or having 
the characters just be profane it sort of gives you the the illusion of of, of the typical character and then it really you know sub it really subverts it um i would say sergeant rutledge uh if i talk about that first you know here's john ford having to make amends he uh felt that he had john Cal- john ford felt he had not done enough to recognize the courage and the valor of the buffalo soldiers that were black units of the cavalry the ninth and 10th cavalry units units um there's been a lot of uh, research done um in the, in the mid 20th century and beyond about how they have been overlooked and John Ford felt he needed to do that. John Ford, when he came to Omaha beach, and I have to tell you this, uh, there is a film that John Ford made that people are still looking for. Uh, our good friend, uh, Yaakov Friedman is <laughs> in the midst of producing a, a podcast for TCM called John Ford's Omaha beach movie. Like, where is it? And the search for it, they're actually searching for it because they think it must exist somewhere. But John Ford talked about the fact that he saw the black soldiers' bodies strewn on Omaha Beach, and he realized how the military <clears throat> had uh, had been a way for blacks to find a role in American life that made them as equal <clears throat> to anything that whites were contributing. And he was a believer that the military uh, was the way for civil rights changes to occur. He wasn't the right-wing I mean, he's been accused of being a white supremacist, a fascist, and and other things by by various uh, scholars that he has innate racism that he can never escape, um, despite his attempts in uh, Cheyenne Autumn and even in the Searchers to sort of redress his his sense towards uh, the the Native American population. Uh, but uh, you know, he did have a certain idea which today would probably be you know considered you know uh, anti. Uh, black lives in some way that the way blacks need to achieve equality for themselves was to join and be and and the citizenry together in the military and to show what John Ford believed in was that they were as equal as any person that they weren't in, that there was no inherent difference between black and white and Ford in Sergeant Rutledge uh, constantly ridicules and highlights the attitude of the white characters. Uh, Woody Strode, who Ford chose, there was a pressure to take Belafonte or to take Poitier, and he wanted someone like Strode, who when he took his shirt off, although he was in his mid-40s, looked like an Adonis. He was muscular. He was he was someone that, in a way, represented the fears of whites, even in the 50s and 60s, that, that which was the same fear that fueled the Ku Klux Klan earlier which was that the black men are going to come and rape their women. And this is really the heart of the film. Uh, Woody Strode plays a top sergeant who is, in a, in a sense, in charge of his platoon, although there is a white commander because they wouldn't, you know, the ultimate commander of the platoon happens to be white, played by Jeffrey Hunter, who plays the sort of semi-Indian character in just four years earlier in The Searchers. So Jeffrey Hunter here, and of course, you know, was also in the pilot of Star Trek as Captain Christopher Pike. So Jeffrey Hunter has sort of a uh, an arc between the last classic era of, of movies and and, uh, and and the early 60s television era uh, where he... So anyway, the point though is, is that Jeffrey Hunter is not only his, uh, his lieutenant that actually has to sort of like work and he has worked together with these black soldiers. He ends up defending him and a court-martial, because there's evidence that is introduced, and Ford does this in a pretty interesting way. It's not, uh, you know, it's it's a flashback. You know, it starts with a, a trial that's occurring. Um, there's a, a character that's Ward Bond, I guess, wasn't available to play the, the head uh, colonel who is running the court-martial. Anyway, in the flashback scenes that occur, and Ford does this very nicely, you know, and you know, there's no... There's no waving of the of the camera, uh, but the way the jump cuts to take you from the trial uh, uh, into the flashback are done excellently. And you see from the viewpoint of various characters, the story. Um, and as the flashbacks continue, what occurs is that 
uh, it seems very damning that that Woody Strode playing uh, Sergeant Rutledge has uh, raped a young white girl, has killed her after he rapes her, and then has killed her father, who tried to shoot him. And although this, he was sort of a decorated soldier, he was someone who was considered above reproach. He had been a slave who carried with him his freedom, uh, his freedom papers. Um, uh, still, there was it was almost clear from everybody who walks into the trial that he must be guilty. And um, as I said last week, it's very similar to the impressions that all the white jury has in To Kill a Mockingbird, where he had pretty much, which was made two years later, where you pretty much have the same motif. The black man is the rapist. The black man is the one you can't trust. The black man is the one who has raped and killed this girl. Blacks can't. And part of what John Ford tries to do, and he does it in a very realistic way, he actually shows the examination uh, that occurs when the woman, when the young girl's body is found. It's the closest to a nude scene that I've ever seen in a Ford film. Um, There's a doctor who I believe is a Jewish character. I've talked about this off pod with you and uh, a number of times uh, with other Ford uh, aficionados. Uh, where's the Jewish characters in, in, in Ford's Westerns? If Ford's Westerns are supposed to be uh, in a way, a symbol of American American life and the connection, I always wonder, you know, the Jews played such an important role in the expansion of, 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 of American of the of American economy, I'd expect there to be at least some Jews in the, in his films, and I think this is one of the Jews that are in the film. Um, it's a German doctor who is clearly adept at what he's doing in terms of his dissection of what has occurred, but his disgust uh, of, of of at the rapist um, and his assumption that it's probably the black guy, as everybody else does. Um, is is palpable, so this was a pretty daring, uh, daring little piece, a daring piece of filmmaking. Uh, he actually, in the flashbacks, he goes back to Monument Valley. He goes back to all the classic places that Ford's heroes were, uh, the same places that are, are so iconic. And he puts Woody Strode there, uh, shooting him like a like a god. Um, he shoots him beautifully in Technicolor, holding onto his rifle. He has, you know, Sergeant Rutledge. Uh, you know, uh, acting as the ultimate hero, coming back, even though, you know, and, and also really putting words in his mouth um, about how justice is impossible, that white people cannot find black people, can, there cannot be justice, inserting the prejudice that exists. Um, Strode is not the most articulate actor in terms of his speech. And it could be that was something that Ford wanted him to be a little bit inarticulate. But Strode in interviews has talked about how Ford got him to cry, but to hold back his tears, to cry on the inside. Strode himself did not really, um, was not a Southern black. Uh, he was, he married a Hawaiian woman. Uh, she was actually a cousin to the queen of Hawaii. And she was also a princess. He didn't really see himself as someone that lived under white oppression. So this film in a way uh, allowed him to have that voice forward you know, in the quality of the screenplay written by Willis Goldbeck, I think a Jewish fellow along with um, Sam, uh, the other writer, uh, allowed Strode to exude those type of those type of sentiments, which I think um, were very important for people to hear. Um, so the the film, although you know, it does have this perfunctory love story between Jeffrey Hunter and the white woman who's come back from Arizona. Um, I think that what 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 becomes clear is is that the nobility of the cavalry is is not there. They are prejudicial. They are assuming. Uh, they have they they assume the worst about the people who the, perhaps they owe the most to. Um, and it's wrong, Ford says. And this is part of what he's saying to view everything in rose colored glasses about the move out to the west. The Indians or the Amer- the Native Americans don't get much of a role in this film, but Ford implies that they are upset for being on the reservation. Uh, they aren't in their territory, and that's the reason why they're attacking. But it is a brutal, horrible place to be. And I think the fact that, again, I'm not spoiling anything by telling you that the, that the identity of the rapist 
That's not Rutledge. <laughs> but the identity of the rapist, again, is an indictment over what is is usually considered, you know, uh, the greatness of the settlers who went off to the frontier. That all is not what you think it is. Um, and, and, and that this is a, a Ford's attempt really to, to get to the, uh, to the jugular vein about, I know I've made my money this way. I've, I've produced these films. He was going to die as the great chronicler of the story of the West, but he felt he needed to do this. Um, and, and, and in a way to sort of like, bury it but bury it in a way that was unnerving he didn't give it a glorious send-off the other two films uh, which are less known um i i think in many ways are superior to rutledge rutledge is a beautiful film but i think the acting is somewhat wooden it is a gloriously shot film and it has a lot of technical touches that only ford could do and you know you you, you can enjoy watching them i guess i think you could see it almost like a a sequel if not a sequel, but it could be seen together with the searchers um, as as an extension of, of what Ford was trying to do. I think the other two films, um, and I'll talk about uh, Day of the Outlaw first. You know, Day of the Outlaw is, is, is really about how ugly the move to the West was. Um, the film really uses another character, which many Western films do, and you can see that in the searchers a little bit, is, the, is, is nature the the uh, the, the snow-packed mountains in Wyoming are the enemy as much as the brutal um uh, uh the brutal bandits who are in a way turncoats from the cavalry they are terrorizing this western town they're led by Burl Ives and Burl Ives seems to have had like a quite a glorious career in, in, in the mid-50s and early 60s. Uh, for stop action, I don't know if Harryhausen was behind it, but the stop well, action, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, um, uh, 1964 Christmas special, Burl Ives was the, was the one who sang, uh, he was the one who sang the song and maybe was the narrator. Uh, but Burl was, you know, a burly fellow and, uh, you know, he is the voice of God in a way in the East of Eden. Um, Big Daddy and uh, a Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Um, he was he seemed to be everywhere. And in this film, uh, I think it's really one of his strongest performances uh, where he plays Captain Brune, who is terrorizing this town, but realizes that uh, he's taken a bullet in the chest before, you know, before you see him. And, you know, he knows that this is his last couple of hours of life. And what sort of life is he going to lead? Uh, which which really underscores the fact that what was the difference between these cavalry readers? Uh, even in the searchers where the cavalry, we wait for the cavalry. And when you, when you see it, oh, the cavalry is coming. They're finally there. They're slaughtering um, the Indians indiscriminately. Um, and, and Ford knew this. Everybody knew it. And the difference, you know, we look at the cavalry as they are the heroes, the ultimate heroes, those white leaders of the cavalry. And yet they engaged in continuous slaughter of innocence. Uh, in this film, the person is a turncoat who is actually, it seems like he's been in, involved in the death of, although it doesn't, the film wisely, the talk doesn't give you the whole, it's not a talky film at all. So you don't know all the details. There's no ridiculous exposition. But you know, just Burl Ives conveys that with his face. The star of the film is Robert Ryan, who I think made a career of, being a hard to pin down tough guy. We talked about him last year, if you remember, on our Black History program. Uh his his racist hero, so to speak, in in Odds Against Tomorrow. Uh, Robert Ryan always I mean nobody played a, a menacing um psychopath like him. And he was able to somehow be able to carry films as the lead, but always like Jack Palance uh have uh you know barely contained the anger um an ugliness of his history and he plays a uh a rancher who in many ways is uh running ramshod over all the farmers of the town and is having an illicit affair with one of the farmers wives played by Tina Louise and um 
the film doesn't even really condemn uh, the affair when they're talking about it. Uh, there's a number of times where, you know, Tina is, is playing, you know, this, she's this Western wife who has been brought out there, obviously, uh, you know, she's the most beautiful woman in town and she's somehow been married to this farmer, but, you know, she's having an affair with this rancher and the rancher wants to kill her husband. Uh, and why? It's because he wants to set up barbed wire uh, because he wants his, he wants, and this of course is a theme that you see in Red River and some many other films where the ranchers, you know, and the farmers are at odds with each other. Um, the text, you know, the range wars were all about this. So it's, these were things that were always under the surface, but in this film, it, 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 in many ways, you, you, you don't have any good characters and you see that the West was a bitter, terrible place to be. Um, and that the men, who lived there saw the women as objects. And this, of course, is what you see in Sergeant Rutledge as well, that the beautiful women, uh, and even the not so beautiful women are all targets. Um, you know, in the searchers, um uh, <laughs> one of the main women characters talks to John Quaylen and she talks about, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we coming out here at such a rough, terrible place? We're doing this for the future. It's worth it. It's worth for us to suffer in order to build cities and towns that the present day people were living in, but they need to know that it was built on, on terror. It was the, 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 the people who, who were conscripted and who became part of the army in many ways were brutal, violent people. The, the, the homesteaders in many ways uh, had to live brutally and, 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 and were not in any way shape or, or, or refined. The women that went out there it wasn't just the school marms who lived these beautiful lives. Most of them were targets. And I think this is what part of uh, the Day of the Outlaw tries to underscore, that the women from the first beginning of the film are targets, no matter what their age. Uh, they are targets for rape, and they're targets for being abused. They are caught in marriages that were arranged and were unhealthy for them. Um, and, and this is part of what... Uh, the film indicates this was a rough, difficult country, and it came at a tremendous price for everybody involved. Um, the film also has an interesting little performance by Nimaya Persov, who we've talked about here, of course, a person who's, you know, many ways very knowledgeable Jewish actor, who uh, everybody probably knows him famously as playing Yentl's father in uh, Yentl with Barbara Streisand. But Nimaya Persov plays Dan, who is sort of like uh, Blaze, Robert Ryan's character's right-hand man, who has helped him uh, basically run this town like uh, with, with a dominance uh, and a destructive force. And he's constantly drinking because he hates what he's become. So you have an Amaya Persoff, you know, always clutching a bottle of liquor, recognizing how ugly everything he's doing is. Of course, um, uh, the band of of, of desperados that uh, Burl Ives brings in, are with led by Jack Lambert, are some of the uh, the lowest people you've ever seen. And Andrew Titoff has a number of scenes showing them how how ugly they are. I think a companion piece to this, of course, are the as I said, is Joel McRae and Randall Scott in Ride the High Country. I love Joel McRae. I mean, I think Joel McRae is one of the most overlooked leading men in, in Hollywood. You know, he really spans uh, from the silent era of the 60s. Um, he was a, an actor that that was great in so many of the screwball comedies, um, even before Preston Sturgis really used him as a sort of a muse, uh, as an alter ego in, in, in some, some of the films that he made in the 40s. Um, Joe McRae aged very quickly, though. And um, part of what this film about is about aging. It's about old people. It's about it's about how the West might have had some glory days, but you know, as it wound down into the 1880s, so to speak, as it got more into the modern era, let's say towards the 20th century, um, yeah, all of that had had disappeared. And and this film as well, the film uh, explores two. Uh, it explodes two different myths. One myth that explodes is the idea of the religious homesteader. There is one of the most ugly, insidious characters. Um, and in 1962, it was quite daring to have a, uh, a sort of a Bible-thumping uh, farmer 
with a very attractive young daughter uh, who, um, you know, the, 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 the group ends up staying by Randolph Scott and his young assistant and Joel McRae. Uh, they end up staying by them overnight, and you can see that uh, that the man invokes Jesus, invokes God, invokes the Bible uh, only for his own purposes. Uh, he is the ultimate um, uh, Bible-thumping hypocrite, and the movie implies very strongly that he is having he is having an incestuous relationship with his daughter, who he doesn't allow to have any connection with any men, um, and. Uh, um, this was in 1962, I think quite a revelation to, to sort of imply this, but again, this is really where Hollywood was going, um, that these religious people who went to the God's country, that many of them were sick in the head, that they were, they weren't necessarily visionaries, but they were people who, who wanted to allow the worst elements of themselves to, 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 to play a role. And it's the same thing true with the mining town that has the gold that is, where uh, McRae and Randolph Scott need to transport the gold from. Of course, Randolph Scott's idea is to actually steal the gold uh, from Joel McRae, although they are old friends. And part of what this last roundup about is what are they as human beings? And is there any nobility to them? Are they going to somehow justify their lives in some way? Are they going to go to their deaths, at least ending them as somewhat of a good person? and turning their back on thievery, implying that most of what they've done has been a canard. Most of it has been a sham. Let me say it again. The mining town that they get the money from, where the Bible-thumping father's daughter escapes to and wants to join her fiancé, is shown as is shown as really Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, it is... It is it is physically ugly. It is it, it's a blotch on the scenic beauty of the West. Um, there is no nobility. There is no um, uh, elevation there. There is nothing there quaint. Edgar Buchanan is there, um, and he does play a drunk judge, but without any sense of nobility. He does have a little bit of something when he talks about the importance of marriage. He talks about how important marriage is and how, you know, and it seems like he's just reading from some sort of memory that he has that he's sort of knocking out of his head. But you can tell that there's nothing redeemable there. And the boys, although the 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 husband, the bridegroom, is has a, a certain classic good looks to him, and you think he's just a stand-up guy. Uh, it's clear that he and his brothers live this terrible, erotic uh, fantasy world where all of them are just waiting for their chance to basically gang rape uh, their brother's wife, which is almost what occurs if Joel McRae uh, doesn't step in. Um, and through a whole series of, of ups and downs, they end up uh, being on the run from these brothers who are shown to be some of the most despicable uh, characters I think Hollywood has ever put on screen. And that's your, but they aren't the outlaws. They are the people who came to populate the West. I think it's like, you know, you talk about Tom Bix, you talk about Gene Autry, you talk about the guys who wore black hats. Hollywood was comfortable in a while of saying, okay, of, of you know, having the heavy, having the, the guy who, you know, with the curly mustache uh, and even having the hypocrite. I think part of what all these three films show is that nobody is clean the purpose of art is the art to represent and teach us the historical truth or or is it to be a role model for something better than what actually is and that you know and, and the, the importance of you know positive role models positive archetypes as opposed to you know bearing warts and all and i think you know i i, I remember hearing I think it was it was from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. He said that there was a there was a king who had had asked you know uh, they when they were painting his portrait they asked the king was it okay, is it okay to paint the portrait painter is it okay to paint the warts and he said well it's okay if you paint my warts as long as you don't forget that I have a face 
And I think we have to find, you know, the balance between these two worlds. We, you know, we can't, we can't kill every myth and, and just, you know, you know, uh, in a certain sense, it's, it's demoralizing and it's also destructive to, to destroy these myths. You know, I think I, I mentioned it before, you know, I think, you know, Lisa Simpson discovering that Jebediah Springfield was not this great hero, but the archetype that he represented in that in that episode, she didn't want to destroy that. And this this uh, you know the anti-hero and picking up the anti-hero and 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 all of these movements to try to represent you know the, only the negative side and 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 that and to remove any hint of any heroism or it's it's it it's not necessarily yeah I, I don't think that's what occurs Yitzchok I think what occurs is a in all of these films is a complex presentation. Um, you know, we'll take, again, I can't speak about Mighty Joe Young, but I can tell you about, you know, in Rutledge, you know, uh, clearly, um, you know, the, uh, you know, the, there is a hero and, you know, the hero is the sergeant who is accused. Um, and And yet we know that we have so much far to go in terms of recognizing the other. Um, there can be justice, but sometimes justice is discovered at a at a big price when we see that we have to see within ourselves something very terrible um, in order to see good in, in another person. I think in the other two films, um, I'll start with the last one, uh, Ride the High Country. Um, it's no secret that that they both of them decide that they're going to have one more blast of heroism they're going to fight this these brothers who are who are just vicious and ruthless and rapists and they're going to although they're outmanned they're going to somehow have their last stand and it really presages what, what happened to the end of butch cassidy in terms of writing to their death um and the point i think is is that one can at least find vindication towards the end of their life i think it is about aging i think i think part of the it isn't just destroying the myth and now it's just a mushroom cloud i think what it is is saying that we tell ourselves myths about our lives and we need to own up as we age to what we've done and in many ways that last act has to define us um and I think that that's sort of the message I think of of um, Ride the High Country. In terms of the Day of the Outlaw, um, <laughs> like I said, the yes, um, you know, there is a you, you do see nobility um, in death. Um, Burl Ives' character knows he's dying, and he's willing to lead his outlaws for the last twenty minutes in some of the most uh, terrible um uh, blizzard film uh, on film that you've ever seen um the aspca i don't know if they would have agreed to the way the horses are displayed here uh the horses look like they're suffering quite a bit as they're going in the snow and robert ryan does a great job of whipping his horse through as he's trying to lead these these men um and and once again you're talking about you know he he he's leading them to death and maybe his own death. And I think that's part of part of what what the myth was trying what, what was trying to be replaced was it isn't although he you know it isn't about getting the girl at the end, it isn't about getting the horse, it isn't about, you know, the 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 simcha. Um it's about justifying your life. And maybe, you know, if we own up to the the guilt we own up to the evil we own up to what has occurred um we could at least elevate where we are and i think that's really really reflective of 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 what we're hearing now and you know when we talk about race relations in general um you know to not deny the cruelty of the past uh to not to whitewash things uh to admit uh that there were very terrible mistakes made horrible horrendous mistakes there was slaughter there was 
you know, a, a genocidal attack in order to get people's lands. There's all the things that 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 your Rebbe spoke about and 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 that we saw unleashed in, in the mid 20th century by by Germany, not not in the same horrific, terrible way, but the worst elements of human beings. Yet America, at least even in its freedom to be able to produce films, can promote a message of I, I think and again you can disagree with me here, of if not vindication, uh, if you want to call it shuva, of of some, you know, possibilities of 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 changing the ledger, of putting more positives. Robert Ryan's character decides to do something good. Um, Burl Ives' character. There's an element of good. Um, it's just that the good isn't as shining and brilliant. It doesn't come necessarily out of, you know a guy with a white hat with shining teeth that you're standing up for and rooting for. It comes out of someone who's complex, who's difficult, who's full of contradictions, who, and I think that's really in a way a growth. Um, If again, these films aren't necessarily for kids, but I think they, they are worth rediscovering as adults because as we, are able to see so much more of ourselves as if we should remember all of them. All right. Take everybody. Watch your step on the way out. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. So you don't miss a single episode. 